Welcome to episode six of Women on the Move, Behind Closed Doors podcast series, bringing you the latest insights from leading business women and entrepreneurs. Hello, I am Donnie Walford, the founder and managing director of Behind Closed Doors. In today's episode, I am speaking with Fiona Hancock, Senior Manager, Climate Change and Sustainability Services with EY. Qualified as a chemical engineer and MBA, Fiona's work involves helping organisations identify, develop and deliver sustainability and climate change strategies that address risk and opportunity. In particular, Fiona is passionate about understanding the risks that climate change poses and advising on ways to manage the necessary transition to a low carbon future. Fiona, it's so wonderful to have you with us today and a subject that is really, really on everyone's mind other than COVID. <laughs> um, and and we, we want to learn a lot more from you today, being the expert in, in climate change and sustainability. So thank you. Um, interesting exercise to go through. I've never done a podcast before. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> so first of all, tell us how you came to specialise in climate change and to lead the team at EY. So I started out my career as an engineer. I did chemical engineering and I started out as a process engineer in the cement industry. So I did that for a few years and I, I just sort of on the side started to become interested in climate change in particular. So I started getting involved in emissions reporting and energy efficiency projects and things like that and really enjoyed it, found, found that I was quite passionate about it. So after a little while of doing that, I sort of took a bit of a sideways step, probably in reality actually a downward step, but I don't like to think of it that way, and, and actually went into climate change and, and emissions reporting to start with um, full time. So I worked as a consultant for a very small firm for about a year and then found myself in an in-house role within the oil and gas industry. So I was there for about 10 years um, in various roles covering emissions reporting, abatement type work, um, rolling out sustainability strategies, things like that, sustainability reporting. While we had an emissions trading scheme, we were looking at our trading approach. And that whole time I was actually a client of EY's, so I knew the team in Melbourne quite well. Right. Which made the transition at the end of those 10 years quite easy. So about five years ago, I went across to the other side and uh, I, I was the first person in the team in at the Adelaide office. I've established the practice here. Right. So when you say you went to the other side, is that what they turn when you go from <laughs> industry into professional services? That's, that's kind of how I felt about them back then. They were on the, yeah, they were the, the, the ones asking us the tough questions when we were our auditors. Um, yeah, no, I'm the one asking those questions instead. <laughs> so they don't, they didn't have a practice in Adelaide before you joined? No, no, that's right. So there was still some um, work being done here, obviously, me being one of the clients, um, but it was all managed out of the Melbourne office generally. Right. So what's the difference between climate change and global warming? Yeah, they're, they're terms that are sometimes used almost interchangeably. They're not actually the same thing, though. So... Global warming became the really popular term in the late 80s um, after the NASA scientist James Hansen testified at Congress 
Um, and he used the term global warming in that in that speech, and it became right. really popular and re- really exploited in, in use. But global warming really just describes the long-term trend of average temperatures that are increasing. Climate change is a much broader term that reflects other, other climate changes, such as um, changes in precipitation, increased frequency and severity of extreme weather events, droughts, all of those sorts of things. These are all consequences of warming and increasing warming is is obviously part of climate change as well. But even though the terms are used interchangeably, strictly speaking, they refer to different things and climate change is really more all-inclusive and probably the more scientifically accurate term to use. So do scientists agree on climate change? Uh, Yes. So the vast, the vast majority of climate scientists are in agreement. Um, there's been surveys done, 97% of active climate scientists agree climate change is happening and that it's, in, it's being caused by human activity. So emissions of, of greenhouse gases, whether that's, that's from um, fossil fuel burning or uh, deforestation, uh, agriculture as well as another big source. Um, so those human-induced emissions that have changed the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And, and explain when you say agriculture, because Australia being a you know high exporter of agriculture and a big reliance on agriculture, in what way agriculture? Things like beef cattle um, or dairy probably as well, um, sheep from what I understand, uh, are quite significant sources of methane, uh, pigs as well. Um, but particularly red meat. So uh, without going into too much detail, it's essentially it's, it's the animals belching. <laughs> um, and there's things being done to try and address that, different um, different breeds, different um, feed that they can give them. I think there's trials happening with seaweed and things like that that can reduce the amount. Um, but, yeah, it's quite significant and obviously a difficult one to abate if, if we're to continue eating red meat. Um, hence why I'm a vegetarian then. <laughs> doing a bit. Explain to us what the greenhouse effect is. That's something I don't get asked very often anymore. Um, essentially, it's the same as a greenhouse that you grow your vegetables in. Um, but instead of glass, you've got these greenhouse emissions in the atmosphere. So the greenhouse gases let the sun come through and, and you know, reach the Earth's surface but then they trap the heat that gets radiated back out to the atmosphere. So just, just in the same way as glass insulates a, a greenhouse where you grow your plants, the greenhouse gases are doing the same thing. So we actually need a certain amount of greenhouse gases to keep the, the earth to a temperature that we can live in. Um, it would be freezing if it wasn't. But the issue we have is that the concentration of emissions in the atmosphere has increased so significantly that you've got a lot more heat being being trapped and, and being reflected back and warming the earth. Um, so we've, we've lost that equilibrium, lost that balance of, of that stable temperature where, you know, it's that sweet spot around 15 degrees was the average. Um, and that's why we can sustain life on earth. But, uh, you know, that, that temperature is increasing on average and the impacts are going to be quite severe. So what's it gone if it was average 15? What is it now? So we've we've already seen one degree of warming right. um, since the start of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, a lot of that's happened since the 1950s. I think about 0.8 degrees since the 1950s. So what's the difference between weather and climate? So weather is really more about the short term, and climate's the long term. So 
they're often confused and, and the terms are misused, but weather really is looking at a set of conditions in the atmosphere in one particular location for a short period of time, like a day or a night or, you know, perhaps a week, whereas climate is the average condi condition in the atmosphere at a given location, but over an extended period of time, like 30 years or more. So climate change is really looking at that longer term change in the average, average condition of the atmosphere. So when the naysayers say, well, this is just, if you look back over history, this is, this is we've had the floods, we've had the droughts, it's not climate change, it's weather, what do you say to them? Uh, to go back and look at the statistics. So, yes, of course, we've had floods, but, you know, we're having one in 100 year floods every five years. Um, you know, the, the frequency of those extreme events is, you know, is... is much, much more often we're seeing those sorts of things. Um, we're breaking records for temperatures every year, just about. Um, and obviously in Australia, the bushfires last year and some of the results that are coming out of the inquiry um, do pretty much link, you know, without argument that climate change is leading to conditions that in the case of bushfires, we're losing that period either side of summer where we can actually do the, the um, fuel management. We can't be doing the burn-offs because we're going straight from winter into bushfire seasons. A, a big question from most of us who are really concerned about climate change is, is it too late to prevent climate change? So the, on the depressing side of things, as I've said, we've already seen one degree of warming. Um, and the other depressing part to add to that is we've already locked in a substantial amount of warming on top of that. So. Uh, greenhouse gases remain in the atmosphere for, you know, in case of carbon dioxide for hundreds of years after they've been emitted. So there's still going to be, even if we stopped all emissions today, we'll still see warming continuing for at least a few decades. On the positive side, it, hopefully, you know, it's not too late to limit some of the worst impacts of climate change. So two degrees of warming is still within reach if we act, you know, if we act now and we're talking a huge transformation to the global economy to be doing that um, mammoth scale of decarbonisation. So two degrees means roughly reducing emissions by about 8% every year between now and 2050. So, so is even that possible? I mean, through COVID, for example, with pulling a few planes out of the air and less less of us driving around for work, blah, 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 is, is that helping at all? So it, it's an interesting one to sort of put that 8% into perspective. So the, the forecasting's looking like the redu reduction in emissions due to COVID will be around 8%. So we need a reduction of the same sort of magnitude every year. Obviously, we want it to be a lot more structured and organised than, than it has been. Um, but the reductions from COVID have, have largely been from uh, transport, particularly um, reduction in, in air traffic, obviously, uh, and a little bit of a reduction in electricity use. But there's been certain sectors that haven't actually slowed down much for, for COVID. So, so interestingly that, you know, everyone wants to return to whatever their new normal will be post-COVID and I'm, I'm just concerned that if, if, it's ta if this is what it's taken to get 8% reduction, 
and, and this is not the way we want to live ongoing, how are we going to make that 8% target each year? Yeah, so we do a lot of work in this area in, in terms of looking at um, pathways to, to net zero. Um, there's a lot of other organisations that do the same thing, but there's it's going to take um, transformational change in every sector, pretty much, including negative emissions. So, you know, more sequestration coming from trees, so re- reforestation um, to actually help draw emissions back out of the atmosphere. But things like, uh, you know, the electricity sector, you know, you can you can easily see that in uh, within Australia in 20 years' time, it is quite achievable that we would be uh, 100% renewables. And then you start to build on that. You, you have the hydrogen economy going. We could potentially be exporting green hydrogen. So no emissions associated with producing that hydrogen. We can export it to other countries as well. So certain sectors will move earlier. It's easier to get that abatement from some sectors than it is others. Um, certain industries like uh, cement can be very difficult to to reach that net zero uh, because there's process emissions involved, which are very difficult without uh, going into carbon capture and sequestration to actually get that that level down to zero. Uh, so the heavy lifting will be done where it's easiest to do first and where it's cheapest, but it is possible. So you th- you're thinking we're still 20, well, you're not thinking, you've probably got all the evidence that points to this, but you think we are 20 years away from being 100% renewable? It's certainly possible. So AEMO... I think that I think that sounds like a long time. It, it, well, we could we could move earlier. Um, it's a matter of political will. I was just going to ask. <laughs> right, because we, we, we've got a lot of um, big industry, haven't we, that we would need to consider. But, but surely they can see the advantages of maybe turning renewable themselves. Absolutely. And industry are quite often leading this. They they can see where it's going and, you know, they're looking at the the longer term financial risk of decarbonisation and making sure they're embracing those opportunities now. Cheap electricity, cheap energy is obviously a, a huge political issue. It's why it's very difficult to get any movement on this, particularly at the moment when, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a, a terrible recession it, it's no one wants to be the one who is going to push electricity prices up. Um, that's not to say renewables are more expensive, but there's certain things that will need to be done with, you know, the networks to be able to support um, that level of renewables as well. So we're not just talking about putting in more generation. We need to be considering things like storage and the actual network um, stability as well. And storage meaning battery storage too? Batteries, hydro is another option, and um, you know this is where it gets really exciting when we start to um, see electric vehicles becoming more common. And and our analysis um, within EY points that to being around three years away, 2023, oh. electric vehicles will be cheaper than internal combustion engine vehicles, and we we'll really start to see you know the the whole system kind of working together. Electric vehicles can be perhaps, you know, a potential opportunity to be able to st- stabilise the grid with more renewables in it. Finally, Fiona, what can we do uh, as business leaders and consumers to improve the environment for our children and our children's children? Yeah, so I think, you know, starting to look at your own impact, and we've touched on some of those sources already, we always sort of tend to 
advised to look at your most material sources first, the larger sources um, within your carbon footprint. Now, for a lot of people, that would be their electricity use. So you can look at shifting to cleaner sources of electricity, whether that's purchasing renewables or putting in your own solar PV, those sorts of things. Um, travel. Travel's huge. Um, we've, we've touched on that with COVID. Um, but considering your own your own vehicle emissions, um, but also whether you can ride a bike or walk or public transport and flying, you know, do you actually need to fly? And that is something COVID has definitely taught us is sometimes video conference is fine. I haven't met anyone in business since March, obviously going through COVID, that will travel anywhere near the amount on, on, on flights um, than they, they have, and I certainly won't be. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a, a really good, a really great positive that will come out of the situation now. But but broaden that, I'd say, you know, when we're looking at an organisation, when we're assessing climate risk or or you know strategies, we we always say to look at the whole value chain because it's often out, you know upstream in your supply chain or use of your products that may be most material and where you can have the most impact. And I think for an individual, it's it's the same sort of thing. So particularly leaders, the influence you can have using your voice, you know, holding politicians accountable, that can have as much impact as reducing, looking at your own uh, emissions as well. So being informed, talking about it, um, especially people with divergent views. Uh, There's no no point just preaching to the converted, but if if we're all having those conversations and trying to influence where we can, I think that's that's a, a potential area that would make a huge difference. Fiona, thank you very much for being our podcast guest. We're really looking forward to being able to share uh, your knowledge uh, with all of our listeners. So thanks once again, Fiona. You've been wonderful. Great. Thank you very much. It's been a great chat. Thanks for listening to the Women on the Move podcast brought to you by Behind Closed Doors. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. To find out more about leadership and professional development for you, visit BehindCloseDoors.com where you can find the full range of memberships and coaching and mentoring options available. This is a Narrative Network podcast.